YouTube series has been designed for you to hear other people's experiences who have persevered in the most dire circumstances. I'm using HOPE as an acronym here to help you get inspired to keep going because I don't want you to give up. The stories you will listen to are told firsthand by people who have faced some incredibly frightful challenges and kept moving forward despite it all. You'll hear honest accounts of their physical, mental, and emotional states. They'll share advice on what to do and what not to do should you or a loved one find yourself in a similar situation. They'll want you to laugh with them. And most importantly, they'll share tips for building resiliency and how they got the strength to do it all. Today, I'm speaking with Larise Duffy, who, after losing her beloved husband, Kevin, to ALS, says she moved from darkness and despair to a place of peace and fulfillment. I knew it was very important for me to introduce Larise to you because she exemplifies everything that Shift for Wellness stands for. Through a very long and emotional journey, Larise made a very conscious choice to use her devastation as a turning point in her life. Listen in as she shares the struggles she and Kevin endured and how through it all, felt a strong pull toward a bigger life purpose. I can remember standing in line, waiting to check out of our Lyme literate medical doctor. And I remember standing there, watching the woman in front of me cry because of her condition, which was Lyme disease. And I remember thinking, isn't it interesting what you are so sad about we're wishing for Mm. you know and it was such a reminder um of just realizing that where you are there's always something worse (laughs) you know um and not that it makes any illness easier and she had every right to cry that was her situation and it was you know devastating for her but it was just so interesting to me that I I was thinking, gosh, you know, we would give anything. We would be jumping up and down. Yeah. It was really, um, you know, Lyme disease testing is very difficult. You can't really rely on it. It's just unreliable. It's, they haven't perfected that. Um, and ALS testing is really just, we've narrowed it. We've ruled everything out, else out. And, um, there's some small testing, but it's really why they can't diagnose it um, definitively from the beginning. So it's easy to fall in this place of not having solid answers and hoping and believing and wishing, you know, that it's something else. And that is exactly what we did. And certainly went on a long Lyme disease journey that took us right around into a circle back to where we started from. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense to think that way. And I I remember when we were talking not too long ago, you were saying how the two of you were giggling and, you know, you're in the doctor's office and you're waiting for results and you're cracking up and you're being silly with each other. And the doctor came in and kind of scolded you. Yes. Yes. At that point, Jen, we had thought, I remember feeling so excited. Kevin took the day off of work. It was a 10 o'clock appointment. We were going to go out to lunch. We were just thinking we have already ruled out all the scary stuff. He had so much testing. He saw so many doctors, so many specialists. So in my mind, and I believe in his too, 
there was nothing to be afraid of. We were, we were just searching for answers and solutions. And exactly. We were just giggling. I mean, that's just who we were together. We, we laughed a lot and we were silly. And, um, yeah, he, after all the testing and Kevin's appointment, he did exactly that. He, he sort of scolded us and said, this is serious. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, and I just remember just sort of straightening out my back and becoming very alert and giving him all my attention. And he said, I believe, Kevin, that you have the beginning stages of ALS. At that point, we had known about the ice bucket challenge. We didn't know exactly what ALS was. And Kevin said, well, what does that exactly mean? And the doctor's words were, how much do you want to know? And that scared me to death. Kevin said, but we want to know everything. And he shared with us how, you know, Kevin would continue getting sick and would, you know, lose the ability to walk and use his hands and uh, possibly speak and eventually breathe. And he would have three to five years to live. And I've never felt horror run through my veins like that uh, in my entire life. You have this vision of your life and all that you've created together and everything that you're hoping for in the future and planning. And it just, it just went, just was just pulled right up from me, out from him. You know, I, I want to remind you or, or share with your audience that we have four boys. We did everything together, having coached basketball, baseball, football. The boy, boys all played on all the teams. We went to all the games together, practices and, you know, all the things, playing outside. Kevin would come home from 10-hour workday, and he was a, a union pipe fitter. So he worked hard. And I can remember him coming in and saying, hey, can you just warm this up for me? Like the leader, the boys just want me to play outside. Like he was so good. He was so good. Um, so this is who we were. We were a team, you know, we, we, and it just all got taken away. How do you ground yourself? In that moment, how do you and Kevin actually stand back up, walk out of that office and drive home? How were you able to keep it all together? You know, it's so interesting because I think about her, like I could almost cry just thinking about myself in that car driving home. You're partially in shock and you're overwhelmed with emotion. And it was very stoic. He just drove. And I just cried. Family and friends rallied around Larice, Kevin, and the boys with love and support. And she credits her brother for confronting her with the hard truth of having to shift her current state of sadness and victimhood and tasking her with the steps necessary to move forward, to get up, 
to start researching, to get to work. And that's exactly what she did. Everybody immediately came to the house and came to to our aid. We were surrounded with a lot of strength and support, thankfully. I don't think I could have done it without, without everyone, you know, backing me and holding me and, you know, carrying me, essentially. And um, it was at one point that I remember my brother coming in. I have two brothers um, and a sister. I remember my brother coming in and saying, I was just laying on the couch, probably a week, maybe days a week, who, who knows. And I remember him saying, you need to get up. You need to stand up. You need to start doing your research. You need to get to work. And I'll never forget it because that wasn't an easy thing for him to say. It would have been much easier to come in and say, corporal, I'm so sorry. And I'm sure he did say those things too, but it would have been easy to just treat me like the victim that I felt like I was. But his words were powerful. And I did that. I, I got up and I, I got to work and I started, you know, figuring things out, trying to anyway, at least putting my energy into something that felt like maybe it could help. He gave you a focus. He gave me a focus. Yeah. He gave me a focus. And um, a family member had mentioned Lyme disease, um, a family, family member of Kevin's and um, someone that she knows reached out to us and said that she had a friend who had MS, um, who was diagnosed with MS and went to this doctor, this Lyme doctor, and is completely fine now. And uh, it was, in fact, Lyme disease. So although I felt like at that point we had two diagnoses from two different ALS specialists, and we should just focus on the fact that this is what he has and not chase after other possibilities. But at the same time, this was a story of, of hope, right? This was a story of someone who was misdiagnosed. Uh, I have read, I had read a few others, uh, one of whom had ALS, uh, and was misdiagnosed. It was Lyme disease. So what did we have to lose? <laughs> and that's what we did. And we did it for quite a long time. A few Lyme specialists and our last Lyme specialist, we were probably at about a year and a half now. And Kevin, we did every therapy, every diet, every bath, every, he even had IV antibiotic at that point. And Kevin started to decline very visibly. And I remember saying to him, I'm not sure if we're searching for answers or we're running from the truth. And that was a hard day. That was a really hard day because I was his biggest cheerleader and his biggest form of hope. And I really believed what I was saying until I didn't anymore. And once I didn't believe it, I had to share it with him because I didn't think it was fair when it was clear that if he had Lyme disease and was on IV antibiotics and was declining, we were on the wrong path. And you were just so intuitive about that. You were trusting until you weren't trusting anymore. You were paying attention. And that's something you've always done, even from an early age. I know you had said people used to always come to you for advice. They would always come to you for counsel. So you have that air, you have that energy, you have that that light, that illumination, that non-judgmental peace 
that's really just so warm and welcoming. People gravitate to you. They want to share with you. They want to they want to share with you. They want to hear what you have to say. And I'm sure Kevin relied on you for that as well. Absolutely. And you know, Liz Gilbert says this, and I think it's so profound and so meaningful, that every truth is kind, even if it's uncomfortable. Every untruth is unkind, even if it's comfortable. Yeah. And um I felt like, although we wanted hope to death so desperately, and we and we chased it for so long, that sharing where I believed we were, sharing my truth at that point was the most loving thing that I could do. It hurt him, you know, he didn't want to hear that. Of course he didn't. I wouldn't either if I were him. He struggled with um not having hope was hard. And I can understand if you don't have hope, you know, you're just waiting for death. And that's really, really difficult. Of course, he got to write his children little notes and, you know, but it was, um, there was nothing about this that was easy, Jeff. Where do you find the hope in all of it? In the entire journey, where do you find that hope? Because not only are the two of you dealing with this together as a couple, He's dealing with this individually, and you're also raising four boys. My answer to that would be that hope turns into trust. And your hope is in your trust that this will somehow all be okay. And that I can't control my husband's illness. I don't have the power to make him better. I've tried that. I've tried that for two long years. When we re- when he declined and we went to yet another specialist, which was Col- at, at Columbia Presbyterian, and we were told, I don't know if you have Lyme disease or not, but I know for sure is that you have ALS. And it was at that time that I just let go, Jen. It was like, I was carrying this, you know, like need, this need to control his illness and for it to be Lyme disease so my husband could survive. So it could be anything but eternal illness. And once we got that third diagnosis, once we received that third diagnosis, it was like, oh, I just dropped all the the heaviness that I've been carrying of, of control. And I just needed to invite acceptance in and and trust that however this was going to go i was going to be the best me the best wife the best mother that's where my effort shifted from trying to control this illness to actually using my power where I actually, where I really had it. And that was in who I was going to be during this tragedy, not try to change the tragedy. And not that I would have done anything differently. Of course we needed to, you know, make sure that maybe there was another answer. Maybe this was a misdiagnosis. I don't know. I'm not sure. 
I asked Larise to speak a little bit more to the idea of radical acceptance when she shares how she was able to let it all go after receiving Kevin's third and final ALS diagnosis. It's the how that a lot of people don't talk about, and Larissa and I talk a lot about it in our work. You can tell me all you want about what it is and why it's necessary, but I want to know about the how. The people that I work with, the people that are in the thick of it, they want to know about the how because it's what's going to help them heal, and it's what's going to help them grow and shift to the other side. You don't just let go. There is a process. I could have never did what I did two years later, two days after he received the diagnosis. It's not possible. Um, There is a process that you have to go through in order to get to the point of being able to invite acceptance in, to be able to let go and choose to trust. And Jen, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Part of it is exhaustion. (laughs) Part of it is just being so darn tired, carrying. I remember every month going to that line specialist, the anxiety, filled with anxiety, because I was so afraid he was going to take that hope away from us. I was so afraid he was going to say, oh, you know, maybe this isn't Lyme disease. Maybe, maybe your first two diagnoses, you know, were, were correct. And it was fear. It was constant fear and acceptance was hard, but it, it took away the need to run from reality. And I was so tired. And at that point, I just knew that I had to I had to shift my energy. And, you know, you asked the how. Part of that answer also is when we came back from that third diagnosis, because we told our kids it was ALS after the first two. And then when we went to see the Lyme specialist and found out it was Lyme disease, we shared that with them as well. Well, now we receive a third diagnosis and a final diagnosis. And when we got home, we called the kids into the room. Kevin was not able to speak very well at that point. I did all the talking and shared with them that it is in fact ALS. And of course, I did that as delicately as possible, but as honest as possible. And no one says one word. One of the boys said, Mom, are you okay? And I said, yes. And after our little meeting was over, I can remember walking out of the room so confused as to why they were asking me if I was okay. I didn't understand why they didn't ask their father if he was okay. He just got the final diagnosis that he had a terminal illness and would die. And I thought about this for days until I realized Oh my gosh, they know, they knew their father was dying. They were watching him decline. They told me, mom, we knew this wasn't Lyme disease before you, before, you know, later on, like weeks later, before you even went to that last ALS specialist. So what I realized was they were watching their father decline. They were 
watching him die. They knew they were going to lose their dad. They needed to be sure they weren't going to lose their mom. Who was I going to be once their father and my husband died? Was I still going to be the same mom? Was I still going to crack jokes? Was I still going to be as loving and as focused um, on them? Was I still going to do the activities and go to their sporting events? Or was I going to crash? Was I going to be somebody different? And that is when I, I called those words my superpower because I realized that I couldn't control the illness. I couldn't control what it was, but I could choose to give them the, the stability, to give them the confidence that I was going to be the mom that they always knew, that I would lead us through this and give them the comfort that I knew they needed from me so much. And it's not always easy while you're going through your own grief journey, but it just reminded me how strong and unbelievable the power of love is. And along with feeling that love, because I had it, have it for them and I, I you know, had it for Kevin, have it for Kevin. But it's through that intensity of so much love, such big love, that you have so much heartache and grief and sadness. It's, it's, it's the price we pay for love and it's worth it. I lived by a coaching principle that was each moment describes who you are and gives you the opportunity to decide if that's who you're going to be. And from that day on, I asked myself that question almost every day. When I felt myself not really intentionally being who I wanted to be, but sort of becoming victim of instead, sort of falling into, I asked myself, who do you want to be right now? Choose. But what I hear you saying, Larice, is you were very much a human being. You were playing your role as a human being. And in that, we all fall back. We fall back into what is comfortable for us, what is safe for us. But you were very intentional by asking yourself those questions and making the choice to show up for yourself first, because we have to show up for ourselves first, right? And so in that, you were able to be the best version of you for Kevin and for your boys. Larice goes on to talk frankly about intentional victimhood and what that meant for her and how she chose to lead her family while steeped in grief. One of my favorite humans was Thich Nhat Hanh. He was a global spiritual leader and peace activist. And he said, the way out is in, meaning the way out of any difficult situation is to look deeply within, gain insights, and then put them into practice. Now, when Larisse works with her clients and when she does her own personal work, her mantra is, the way out is through. Keep listening as she gives anyone feeling like a victim permission to work through those feelings purposefully and with the intention to come out whole on the other side. But I think in saying this, I want to make sure it's very clear. There is no judgment for anybody who does fall victim to this. You are a victim. You know, there were times that I... 
there were times, very few, but there were times that my answer was, I'm going to be a victim. My whole point was I was going to be her intentionally. I wasn't just going to fall into something um, by default. I was going to intentionally decide who I was going to be. I knew that my kids, you know, Jen, the biggest loss that my kids probably ever experienced was like a championship rep basketball game. You know, I knew this was their first experience and I knew that who I was and how I navigated it was going to be very big for them. And that was what was in my power. I was really trying to evaluate what did I have control over? Where was my power? And use it accordingly. Instead of putting so much energy, which is what our chase, you know, for it to be Lyme disease was all about putting all my energy into something that I never had control over. Mm-hmm. That I never even, I, I never even had a say in. Yeah. It's important for people to have the permission to feel the feelings and to be honest with them. You know, I want to re- remind your listeners that when I reached that point of acceptance and chose to lead my family the way that I did, I had already been grieving Kevin for two years. And although we had hope there and we thought that this was all going to turn out okay, there was still, I was still grieving. You know, I, I was grieving from the moment we were told by that ALS specialist that he thought Kevin had the early stages of ALS. Um, so I think it's very important to say, don't rush through the process. It's a necessary part. You know, we talk, the only way out is through. The only way, which you so beautifully said, um, and I forget who quoted, but the only way out is in. We have to go through those, those stages of grief very carefully, very compassionately, and very patiently, because it's the only way we get to the other side. And I'll be honest with you, there are moments, uh, I just canceled a two-day trip to go see a high school girlfriend with another friend, because emotion suddenly just came over me. Uh, The morning of, I was dressed, my hair was done, I was packed, my bags were by the door. And I sat down for a moment. And I was overwhelmed with emotion. I didn't see it coming, Jen. We're four and a half years in. And I canceled my plans because I knew I had to be with me. I knew this was my body, my body's way of telling me that I just needed myself. I didn't need to go be busy and distracted. I needed to give myself the love and the kindness and the attention that that I needed. And what's so interesting is as I did that, because I matter too, right? And 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 so does everybody listening to this. We have to matter to ourselves. And I spent two days with myself feeling what I was feeling, letting it come out, right? Not rejecting it, not resisting it, but allowing it. And That was on a Thursday. I did that Thursday and Friday. And Saturday night, I had been invited to go out to see a band. And I really felt like I had let it go. I had released these feelings. And I went out. And I had the best time 
we danced and we sang and we laughed and it was so joyful. And I truly believe that by letting go of these feelings, by releasing so much sadness, that I made room for so much joy. And it was such a reminder to me of how important this part is. We're not giving in to something. We're not being weak. We're being kind and attentive. And we're allowing. And it's beautiful. And that's self-love. Yes. yes. That's a little shift in the energy. A little shift in the energy that creates an incredible change. Yeah. Even if it's even if it's just for that moment, even if it's just for that night. Yes. Yeah. And that is that is wonderful medicine. Mm, exactly. Exactly. And you know, I, I love my doctor. He's um older, but I had a physical that day, the day that I decided not to go on the two-day uh trip. And I was sharing with him as, as I was weeping, I was sharing with him my decision and why and what had come up. And he said, well, he said, maybe you, maybe you should go. You know, you'll be distracted. You'll be busy. It'll be good. And I thought, oh, no. I didn't, I didn't say anything to him, but I thought, oh, there are people still being told to busy themselves out of it. Please, no. If you get one thing out of, out of our conversation today, it's be present. Be present with these feelings. Let them be. I know that you and I are both on the path of wellness and to educate people to be as well as they possibly can to make those choices, but to also strengthen their voice at the same time. And what I'm hearing while you're telling me that story is that it's not too late. And I don't know how you feel about that, but it's not too late to write a little note to your doctor and say, thank you so much for our visit. It was wonderful. But I do want you to know my one takeaway is this, and it's my concern for the advice of being told to distract myself. Doctors have such influence over people, so much influence over people. And so many people don't question what their doctors say. So many people don't search for second opinions and look at how many you and Kevin had sought. It's important for people to know that they've got a voice and they can question and it's okay to stop and have that conversation with the doctor. I did not always have that because I saw that as a form of confrontation, which of course it's not. It's just having a conversation with another human being. But once I took that, you know, I stuck my little toe over that line, my relationship with my doctors have gone to a whole other level. When they come in, like I don't, it's not a patient doctor relationship any longer. It's like I'm going to see my friend. It's been six months and we're going for a visit and we talk and we have really great conversations and I ask them questions and they ask me questions. Jen, what are you doing? What's the latest? What's going on? What have you learned? What have you researched? What are you taking now? <laughs> and it's fun to see that shift because I think we forget they are a person as well. 
maybe they have more education than we do in this one particular field, but it's okay for us to question them on that. Absolutely. And I I love that you just shared that story and what beautiful doctors you must have um, to be able to, to, to really be able to take that in from their patients. And it reminds me that sometimes we're the student and sometimes we're the teacher and how beautiful for your doctors to realize that your uh, appointments together are sometimes allowing them to be the student. And I think when we can really live a life understanding that we are the student sometimes for our kids, for, for, for my kids, I, I'm a student sometimes. And I'm very willing to be in that role. And I think it's when we stop being willing to be in that role that we stop learning. It's a journey of growth. And that's wonderful. That good advice. Larice, you said that you and Kevin used to be really silly with each other and you'd laugh a whole lot. Were you able to find humor and laugh throughout this process? Did that silliness go away? No. As a matter of fact, I I often share that, you know, I had made a decision that I was going to navigate through this, lead us on this journey with patience, love, compassion, kindness, and a sense of humor when appropriate. And it's so funny because there was a, Kevin was now unable to speak at all. And my sister uh, got him a little bell, like a little bing, you know, a little, little bell. Like you'd have it a counter and you're, you want to get the, the counter person or whatever, that kind of bell. So all the kids had cocksacky, if you could even imagine. And um, so now we have Kevin in bed, unable to speak, and four kids Exactly right. So it was just really, what? What are you going to do, right? So I'm in their rooms at the, you know, at the end of the hall, trying to do whatever I was doing with them. And all of a sudden, I hear this bell go. Right, he's he's just hitting bell, and I go running. Do you remember? He can't speak. This is his only way of communication. So I think, oh my god, I look. I walk in the room. And he's motioning, he needs a drink of water. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, we got to get the rules of this spell straight. Because clearly you don't understand how how this works. <laughs> so I'm going to share with you the bell, how you ring a bell for a drink of water. You go, bing. That, that, that means I have something there. It's not an emergency. It's not. What you just did, I told him. That means I'm no longer to breathing and I need oxygen. <laughs> and we laughed and we, you know, that's just who we were. I mean, it's so funny. He would write in the air. We were very competitive. We loved competing <laughs> against each other and we would play every game possible. And if there wasn't one, we, he would make one up. That was more of a him thing. He would, he could make a game out of anything and, um, and a competition and. He would air, he would just like draw letters and I would guess. And it's so funny because when I was writing the book, my sister-in-law was like, why didn't he just use an iPad? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> it was probably our love for guessing because that's what, you know, he'd be like, you know, and, and, and then he would draw again. And, you know, sometimes there was a little frustration and I was actually a nervous guesser because I could feel his frustration. <laughs> but, um, I don't know why we didn't use an iPad more, but like I said, we definitely, so, so in answer to your question, 
Absolutely. A sense of humor. My mother said to me when I had four kids, two and under the age of two and a half, Larice, motherhood, part of motherhood is having a good sense of humor. Don't have kids if you can't laugh and laugh at yourself and laugh at them. And fortunately, my parents had given me the gift of a really good sense of humor. I, I find a, a lot of things funny. Um, I like fun. I like joy. I like laughter. Um, so yes, absolutely. We definitely, um, you know, I was going to lose my husband. I wasn't going to lose the opportunity to laugh with him until that happened. Yeah. That's lovely. There's five pillars in shift for wellness, and we've talked about a lot of them, self-acceptance, humor, intention. You talked a lot about faith and the trust when you let go. And the last one is thankfulness. It's, it's the gratitude and, um, making a practice of gratitude is really a healing journey in itself. And that thankfulness for me was all about, okay, so you have, this is, this was your story. This was your journey. This is what you have just come through. You are not the same person. You're not the same person at all. This is the after. What are you going to do with that? And my hope is that people will, once they've make it through this journey, whatever their journey may be, that they will use what they've learned on that journey and share it with the greater good. It's their give back. It's their give back. And you have so many <laughs> give backs. And I just love for you in any order, <laughs> in any order, because there are so many from your memberships to your coaching business, to the scholarships, to your latest book that you are launching soon. And actually, by the time everyone listens to this, it will have been launched already and it could be ready to be purchased. So I'd love for you to share all of that with everyone. Well, thank you for that. Um, I too practice a lot of gratitude and am so grateful to have had been married to 20 for 23 years to the most amazing husband that gave me so much love and uh, gave me four children, four beautiful boys um, who differently remind me of him in so many ways. Um, and practice feeling that we're better for having him rather than bitter for losing him. And I um, find that by bringing them along with us on our continued journey while we're still here, it's such a beautiful way to manage our grief, to keep that love alive. And, you know, we started with kindness cards where we handed out instead of mass cards, um, people to do acts of kindness in Kevin's name and pass it along. And we went over 2,000 of those. We went through over 2,000 of those cards. And um, Kevin was extremely kind and a very big underdog, you know, uh, cheerleader. You know, he loved an underdog and loved to see them win. And then um, we started the Kindness Matters Scholarship, 
where we give a thousand dollar scholarship to a senior in high school for, for simply being kind. Um, and it's my way of sending the message to our youth that kindness matters too. And you get rewarded for it. Um, it's important just as athletics and essays and having great grades. Those are really important, um, awards to get to, but so is kindness. So is, so is practice and kindness and just being genuinely mind. Um, and, um, of course my, my coaching and being able to help women who are, um, you know, experiencing loss, um, which comes in many different ways, right? Losses, divorce, losses, losing a partner, losses, you know, losing yourself, um, which I talk and work with a lot of women. Um, and now um, I've written a book and it's called Raising Hope. And um, I'm just like overwhelmed with emotion about this book because it's, it's my give back. It's, it's my story and our story. And it's the lessons that I've learned. And it's, it's my hope for this book is to be the example of what's possible to be able to see down the road of so much fear and so much sadness um, to, to, to see what's, what's down the road, what's on the other side of that, because I'm no different than anybody. If anything, I had so much fear just, just being married and just generally about different things, driving to places I didn't go to, I, I had never been to, and, you know, doing new things, the fear of the unknown. This was a big thing for me. Um, so, and I can do it. I promise. I promise you can do it. If, if the girl who wouldn't drive to Newark Airport and told her husband, if you ever get stuck at Newark Airport, and the only way for me to ever see you again is for me to come pick you up, we'll just have to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so so I felt like gosh if I can do it I know every single you and you and you and you and you can absolutely do it I have no doubt and I want to be the example of that for you I want to show you what's possible and I'm and I'm I'm here to walk walk alongside you you know during it um and um I know that Kevin is so proud and, you know, a year ago we lost my, my mother unexpectedly. And, um, I know that they're together, um, just cheering me on and, and just being so proud for all that I have, um, been able to, to accomplish and, and how I've taken this experience and my heart and really given it to anyone, um, who, who needs it. So. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are without a doubt, hands down, a stellar example to all of, of what is possible. Thank you. There's two things that I'd love for you to share. One, you may choose to keep private and the other one I think will help people that are listening. I remember when recently someone had said a little something to you about your mom's passing and then apologized quickly because she thought she may have upset you. 
And you said something to her, like, if I remember the story correctly, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's so important to just, just mention that story because for the other people, for, for the other people that are experiencing this situation from the outside, what do they do? What do they say? Because it becomes very uncomfortable. Absolutely. So my mother passed away and my father is 89. They were married for 63 years and it became clear that he wasn't going to be able to stay by himself. And so he moved in with, with the boys and I, and um, we made a little apartment for him downstairs and it's working out very nicely. And I had to go pick up his medicine at Walmart where my mother always uh, picked it up. And this one time I was there and this woman behind the counter who knew my mother and father well, and she said, oh, how is your father doing? And I said, he's doing wonderfully. I said, he's very happy with us. And that makes me happy. And she said, I miss your mother so much. She said, I loved when she would come and she was always smiling, always so happy. And then she caught herself and she said, oh, I shouldn't be sharing this with you. I'm so sorry. And I said to her, every day, I know that my mother isn't here anymore. What you've just shared with me is not a reminder that my mother has passed away, but a reminder that while she was here, she brought so much joy into people's lives. She brought so much happiness because that's who she was. And that's a gift. And I want to thank you for giving it to me. And she smiled. It was just a beautiful moment. I think you know, I, I think that people have pulled me aside and said, like, I want to share with you a story that I remember about your husband. Let me tell you, it's a gift. It is a gift for people for to know that he touched as many hearts as he has, to know that he has made an impact, and then to share it with me is the most wonderful gift that you can give another human being. So I say. Don't ever be fearful of bringing up someone's loved one because it's just a reminder to them that they're still in your heart and your thoughts, that their memory is still alive. And I don't think there's any greater gift that we can give to someone than that. And Larice, would you be willing to share that adorable story about the change in plans that your mom made towards the end of her life and where she was going to be buried. I just think it's such a beautiful testament to who Kevin was as a person. And I mean, that is really the ultimate gesture of love and appreciation. Absolutely. So my parents, uh, years and years ago, had bought their plot. Uh, at, at a cemetery in, in our town where we live. Uh, my parents lived in, this, lived in the same town as I do. And this is where we grew up. So when Kevin died, he was cremated. And I wasn't actually even going to get a pot. I wasn't going to bury him. And someone had said to me, why not? How beautiful would it be for you to have a place to go? Um, and, and to just be there, you know, as as just peaceful and just a nice. And I was like, Gosh, thank you. Like that's a one. Yes, I, I think that will be. I think that really is is a, a great idea, and it's what I'm going to do. Well, once we got the plot, my mother and father changed their plot so they could be right next to Kevin, and it's 
such a, it, it, first of all, it makes me so happy because I go there often and, um, they're right next to each other, you know, so it's, it's just so beautiful. Um, and my mother, my mother really struggled with Kevin's death. She loved him like he was her own and he adored her. I mean, they were really very sweet together. So the fact that they could be together and the fact that she loved him that much, that it was so important to her to be right next to him. Um, it, it just warms my heart. I mean, it's, it's just really, it's beautiful. And to feel like they're, um, to feel like they are so together and to, to look at their gravestones right next to each other creates the feeling in my mind that they're so together in heaven. And that's, that's a beautiful thought for me. That's, that's a, a beautiful daily thought that I get to have. And, um, and it was just showed how much love that she had for, for Kevin by, by, you know, even thinking about that and thinking, nope, I want to be right next to him, you know, so just a beautiful, beautiful token of, of how much she just adored him. It's nice to even bring these up because it, it, and this is what I guess I mean. It just makes me feel so warm. It makes me feel so happy. I, I, um, talking about these things reminds me, you know, and even writing the book, you know, just going through everything again was so cathartic. It was so therapeutic. Um, and it brought tears. It brought smiles. It brought happiness. It brought joy. Um, it brought pain, you know, but it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful journey to, to go through, um, almost, you know, well, I started writing the book and we were at four years. So, yeah. So good, good stuff. Good stuff. And with all this being said, I, I miss him every day. You know, I, I absolutely miss him every day and different things, you know, um, come up and they might, they might come up very unexpectedly or at very odd times. And my message would be, please be kind to you because you deserve all your love, all your patience, and all your compassion. That's lovely. At Shift for Wellness, we live by and foster the principles of self-acceptance, humor, intention, faith, and thankfulness. Larise does a lovely job of embracing these principles, and I want to thank her for having this conversation with me and for sharing her wisdom, her vulnerability, and for bearing her soul to all of you listening. Larise exemplifies what is possible, and she so beautifully shares it in her life's work of helping others to rise up and create their own unique destiny. Pick up a copy of her book, Raising Hope. Larise takes you on a journey of possibility where hope is the destination. She reminds you that you are not a victim of your circumstances, but rather the owner of your choices. Thank you for listening. And remember, you deserve to be well. You deserve to be whole.